readings are taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, verses 17 to 25, and you can find that on page 752 of the church Bibles, or in the large print, 1201. And I will follow that straight on with the passage from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 to 5, and you can find that on page 1249, or in the large print, 1962. New heavens and a new earth. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there will no longer be any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, 
Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Simon, very much indeed. It's intoxicating, isn't it, actually? I mean, those two passages read back to back seem to me to be just full of such anticipation, hope, vision, confidence that, in a sense, you almost feel uh, slightly drunk at the end of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for his extraordinary power. We thank you that it is a light to our lives, a lamp for our feet and our walking. And we pray this morning you will help us to engage uh, with these scriptures in new, refreshing and uplifting ways. Uh, We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Where will it all end? It's a phrase we use in times of crisis, um, times when we really can't see the way out. Where will it all end? I imagine uh, the people of Greece feel that pretty much at the moment. Where will all this talk about debt and debt repayments and uh, cuts in welfare, where will it all end? What kind of society will we have at the end of it? And as we've all reflected on the enormous migrations taking place at the moment across the world, uh, particularly across the Mediterranean, um, where will it all end? And I guess at many periods of human history, people have thrown out the same question in, in despair or in doubt, in uncertainty. During and after the Second World War, during the Cold War, with all the threat of nuclear war, which I remember from my childhood, um, later years becoming aware of all that happened in China during, those, during the 60s and 70s. And uh, it must have been the cry on so many millions of hearts, where will it all end? And today, I think we are also in a time, perhaps not of that... Uh, uh, disastrous uh, conflict that represented by the, the great world wars, but nonetheless we're in a time where, to use a slightly tired phrase, the, the tectonic plates are shifting. We may never again know the prosperity in Europe that we know now. Uh, we may never again know the uh, political, relative political stability we have known for half a century. Um, our children may live in a far more uncertain and far more uh, problematic world than we do. We don't know where the uh, rise of uh, extreme forms of Islam will lead. We are wholly justified to have fear and and anxiety uh, milling around inside us. Where will it all end? And then this morning we've read these two quite extraordinary passages, passages of 
amazing beauty and of uh, a kind of incandescent hope with vision for the future? Is it just wishful thinking? Uh, is it just dreaming? Does it really relate to where we are today and how we live today? It's that small issue I would like to try and tease open. Um, let's see how far we get. Where is it all going to end? Throughout human history, people have toyed with the idea of where is the human story going? What's it about? What's its big shape? And humanity, over the centuries, has anticipated all kinds of futures. Pictures of how things will end. And I suppose the dominant one for our society over the last 200 years has been the, the vision of progress, that human rationality, wisdom, uh, rising prosperity, uh, our technological mastery, um, all these things working together will produce uh, consistent progress. There may be dips, but fundamentally, humanity is on an upward curve. And I suppose that's been the dominant underlying philosophy for the last couple of hundred years, seriously dented by world wars and other events, but still we come across it. It has its other uh, forms, um, like uh, Marxist, Marxism and communism, which, which dream again of a, a future that uh, will be, be a kind of utopia for, you, for humanity, um, destroyed by the oppression in humanity and barbarity that it also engendered. Listen to uh, someone like Professor Brian Cox today, extraordinarily brilliant uh, communicator, a fabulous guy to listen to in terms of uh, introducing us to the wonders of the universe. But his basic underlying understanding is that we have the extraordinary privilege, the extraordinary wonder of living in that tiny blip of cosmic history in which there is intelligent life to see it and observe it. We are just so privileged, he, he says, to, to be alive now and to have those capacities of reflection, observation, uh, that mean we can... Uh, understand something of the extraordinary glory of the universe. But before us and after us, it will be unseen, unknown. It will happen in cold, silent ignorance. That has a, a religious dimension through the, uh, the so-called new atheism, the scientific atheism, which has been current over the last 10 or 20 years, in which, again... We are just a, a chance and very brief evolutionary phenomenon in the midst of a vast story to which we are essentially irrelevant. The existentialist strand in Western thought will say, nonetheless, our task as human beings is to grasp the extraordinary privilege of life and awareness and to live it for, for, all, it's, uh, for all it is worth. We should not waste such a precious moment. And when eventually we face our, our death and our passing, then we should, with Dylan Thomas, rage against the dying of the light. Religiously, there are other philosophies that, uh, that people around our world 
uh, hold and which un underpin their thinking. Uh, Eastern religions, Hinduism and Buddhism, basically see li life as cyclical and it just keeps going round and round and round. And we live in fear and anxiety that we should not slip lower in the cycle of life, but we should uh, somehow maintain our, our place. And the Buddhist will hope that through detachment and separation from the uh, destructive emotions and commitments of life, we might eventually find uh, that place of emptiness and escape. The Muslim, we are now learning, longs to see a caliphate, longs to see on earth uh, a kingdom that will bring together all, uh, all Muslim people. And beyond that, for all of us, there is the judgment of God that we must face. Christian views have varied, and I think we are in a place now where we are just rethinking what has been um, uh, the assumption of Christians over a long period of time that uh, the destiny of this world is, is, is in the end to, um, uh, to decay and, uh, and to be destroyed um, and that believing Christian people will be safe in the hands of God in a, in a kind of spiritual uh, afterlife. I think we are now beginning to think, to engage with the kind of scriptures we are looking at this morning, which encourage us to think more about what are God's purposes for humanity within his creation. There's lots there that we may want to talk about in other forums for our. What does the Christian have to say into this bewildering array of outlooks, possibilities for the future? I think the most important thing to get hold of is this. Um, I, I came home to me most clearly years ago when I was reading some of the writings of Leslie Newbegin, whom I quote often, um, and he worked for many, many years in India, in Hindu cultures, where that cyclical view of, of, of life was predominant. And he says that the, the really key thing that we need to get hold of is this, that the Judeo-Christian biblical tradition injects into human history a sense of movement. That the whole Christian story, the biblical story, teaches us to think in terms of, of beginning, origins, an unfolding story, and a destination. And it is that sense of purpose and forward direction which is uh, an important part of the Christian contribution to, to human history. Human life, human experience here is not purposeless, it's not meaningless, it isn't just a, a brief flaring of light before we all sink back into the darkness, but we are part of, of a story that runs across human history, a story that has meaning because it is under the purpose and direction and fulfillment of the God who is its source and origin. It is, in essence, a vision of hope. And that is really what our passages today are about, and they are what Christians contribute to a world as fragmented, as uh, diverse, um, as um, bereft of confidence and meaning as the world in which we live. So let's just look at uh, Isaiah 65. Uh, take your Bibles, if you would like to. Um, Isaiah 65 and the passage we looked at there. We've, over the weeks, uh, mentioned a number of times the, the probable contexts in which this, uh, these passages are set. 
um, probably in the process of the Jewish exile in, in Babylon and the unfolding process of their returning home. And the experience of excitement and fulfillment, the sense that God's purposes were being fulfilled, but also a sense of disappointment that it was not all they had dreamt of. It was fell short of their, the vision and the, and the longing. And concluding at the conclusion of these wonderful passages, we have this one here, which is just fired through with hope and confidence in, in an ultimate future. It's written into that bewildering and stressful situation where people are saying, where will it end? How will this unfold? It's a picture of enormous beauty. Let me just highlight some of these things and remind you of it. A new heaven and a new earth. The world which we live now in its brokenness, its sordidness sometimes, its wonder, but its brokenness is going to be remade. Heaven as the place of God's presence and earth as the place of humanity's home are going to be remade and made new. There will be a new Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem will be restored and will be gloriously rebuilt, not the uh, rather makeshift ramshackle reality they saw at that time. Even death itself will cease to be. There will be no more crying and weeping. Those uh, wonderful verses about even to be 100 years old will be thought nothing um, in, in this time to come. Creation itself will be reconciled and will be at peace. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And they won't harm anywhere on my holy mountain. This vision stayed as a haunting call, a haunting longing through the subsequent centuries of Jewish history. And it's picked up very exactly, as you will have realized, in uh, Revelation 21. And so from Isaiah 65, in a sense, that vision is still held by God's people, still held in longing and hopefulness right through to Revelation 21. And you will have picked up the very exact echoes there. New heavens and a new earth in verse 1. The remaking of God's uh, home and our home, as, as it were. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but it is not the Jerusalem that we know uh, here. It is a new Jerusalem, and it is... Somehow it comes down from, from God to earth. The new, the new Jerusalem comes to us. The story is no longer about us trying to find God, but actually of him taking up his dwelling with us. In this new creation, in this new coming together that God is, is going to make, is going to rebuild, he will be with his people in the heart of this new creation. Jerusalem will come to us. And we will, he will be with us, and we will be his people, and we will live with him and in his presence. And that is to happen in this great remaking of his creation, a new heaven 
and a new earth. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And John, writing there, picks up those themes from Isaiah. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more weeping. This is the vision of Isaiah brought into a new focus, brought into a focus the other side of the whole event of of Christ, of Jesus crucified risen and ascended. And it is the picture of where human life and God's creation are headed. Not the circular image of Eastern religions, not the brief, wonderful blip in the midst of emptiness of modern scientific thinking, but actually the purposeful destination, the direction of travel, the place where God's creation will end up. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. How does this happen? How do we see it? How do we connect with this? How do we live it out? We need to understand, and this is sort of the fundamental Christian perspective on this, that that uh, vision of Isaiah, which in a sense seemed to lack roots, seemed to lack a connection with life as it was being lived at that time, seemed to be sort of almost floating in independence, has actually had its realization, has actually had its crystallizing moment in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, the Word of God, the presence of God, the presence of God amongst his people, God with us. And through his ministry, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension, this whole process has been, as it were, taken hold of by God and given new, new direction, new engagement, new fulfillment. And we, as God's people, as disciples of Christ, are already living in the unfolding fulfillment of this. We are on the journey. We are moving towards that day of fulfillment The one you have seen go, said the angels to the disciples at the ascension. The one you have seen go into heaven is the same one who will come again. And we live in the world in which these things are already, as it were, uh, distilling, (laughs) that's not the right word, um, sort of unfolding into life. We live here in a context in which this new creation is beginning to happen, confident that we will live in its fulfillness, in its fulfillment, that it is our destiny as those redeemed by Christ to enter into this new creation. So what does that mean in terms of our daily living? I've got five things briefly. We need, first of all, to be aware, to be, to beware of over-detailed, over-elaborate interpretations of how all this will be. Christian history, and indeed today, is littered with um, very detailed interpretations around the modern state of Israel, around the rapture, around the second coming of Christ, with dates and details which Scripture does not support and which it does not uphold. We need to beware of over-detailed overheated interpretations of these things. 
Secondly, we need to be people of hope, not people of general optimism, but people of profound hope that we are part of God's coming kingdom and that part of our destiny as people saved by Christ is to enter into resurrection life and to be part of this whole vision of new heaven, new earth. It's not something, the details or the precise shape of which we can define, but it is a confident hope because it is rooted in the whole story of Christ. And we need to live and we need to die in that hope and expectation. Thirdly, we need to work for it here and now because scripture assures us that what we do now through faith in Christ and for his kingdom is not wasted. It is not just uh, filling time before all things come to a, a fiery end. Our lives, our work, our investment, our service now is all part of what will uh, be incorporated in the coming kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. Nothing that we do in the name of Jesus, nothing done as a witness and our expression of our discipleship is wasted. Fourthly, we need urgently to call men and women to follow Jesus and begin the journey of transformation into his likeness and engagement in his coming kingdom. This is what evangelism is about. It's about calling people to enter into this journey, to enter into this hope, to enter into this discipleship of Jesus, to enter into this process by which we are working together with him for the coming of his kingdom. And fifthly, and there are so many parables of Jesus which point us in this direction, we need to stay awake, alert, and looking for his coming, looking for the days when these things will unfold in a, uh, a critically new and comprehensive way, when new heavens and new earth will begin to unfold and become actual, where the new Jerusalem will come to earth and God will dwell with his people. Just this morning, I, I think uh, we've just got a moment to squeeze this in. Just this morning in my uh, morning prayers and devotion, I came across this passage about uh, about the city. Uh, you need to forgive the, uh, the sexist language and uh, to understand that uh, women are included in the phraseology here. Forgive its antiquated feel. But I thought this was really good, and it was my reading this morning. By far the greatest thing a man can do for his city is to be a good man. Simply to live there as a good man, as a Christian man of action and practical citizen, is the first and highest contribution anyone can make to its salvation. Let a city be a Sodom or a Gomorrah, and if there be but ten righteous men in it, it will be saved. Simple, old-fashioned Christianity did mighty work for the world in that it produced good men. It is goodness that tells, goodness first and goodness last. Good men, even with small views, are immeasurably more important to the world than small men with great views. It's about our world. It's about where we live. It's about our town. And the vision is one that we will, we will live to see 
and we will live to be part of.